Blog Talk Radio. Bowermaster, and you're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. Fast Forward Radio is an audio production of the Speculist blog, and this show deals with all things futuristic, all things having to do with a bright future unfolding before us. And with me this evening is my co-blogger and co-speculist, El Jefe Grande himself, Mike Sargent. Hello, Mike. Hello, Phil. How are you? I'm doing well. Good. Good. Well, we've got a lot of material that we need to cover this evening, but I think it would uh, probably only be appropriate to just start out with a few quick words on the tragic events that have occurred in Colorado today. I don't think we should ignore that, Um, both up here in uh, my part of the state and also down uh, nearer to where you live. A disappointing coincidence. Uh, Has it been established actually at this point that it's a coincidence, or do we know for sure? I haven't heard anything beyond uh, the two the uh, incidents might be related, at least on the local news. Yeah, for, for, for those listening who don't know, there were two uh, shootings today, apparently random shootings, both uh, one at an actual church and one at a mission related to a church, one in the uh, northern part of Denver and one in uh, Colorado Springs. A terrible, uh, uh, tragic state of affairs. Uh, we're looking to get more information on that, and of course, our uh, thoughts go out to the victims and to their families. So, Absolutely. yeah, so we will, uh, having noted that, shift gears. And uh, this is an unusual show we're doing tonight. Um, we've done uh, two-man shows before, obviously, with uh, Stephen and myself. And you and Stephen have had a couple of outings. And this is the first time you and I have done it uh, together, just the two of us. We don't, uh, we don't have Stephen uh, on the program with us, although he is here uh, at least in spirit, if not in some other ways. Uh, so I guess we have no LSU news to report today. Unfortunately. Uh, well, yeah. We, I, however, I we do, however, have the uh, usual smattering of uh, Denver sports news. Well, I, I think we got a nice smattering today. You want to you wanna give it away or sh- should I? Was that smattering or splattering? <laughs> um, <laughs> today it was a splattering in the right direction, absolutely. Uh, it looks like uh, the Broncos beat a longtime arch rival, the Can- Kansas City Chiefs, in Kansas, uh, 41-7. 41-7. I believe that was here in Invesco, though, actually. Oh, my bad. Oh, that's okay. Yeah, we, 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 and that's twice we've beat them this season because we did beat them at Arrowhead uh, uh, last, last time we played them. So we've, uh, we've just owned them this season. But that was a beautiful game, 41-7. to Just demolished them. This, uh, uh, this, this running back, now I can't think of his name. Uh, well, as soon as I wanted to talk about him, of course, the name disappears from my head. But the MVP had a heck of a... I did stop by the uh, NFL website and uh, take a look at the division standings. And, uh, what, what we actually had. Now, was, why do you want to ruin it when we're having such a good time talking about that? <laughs> we had a uh, 437 team uh, beating a 333 team, so I don't think we should uh, get out our playoff jerseys yet. Yeah, you know the big the big Rome fubber, uh, foam rubber finger needs to uh, needs to stay in place for for a while longer yet. Although um, I, I will say that had San Diego lost that game, that they seemed certain to lose earlier today, things would be looking a little cheerier for us with that win. But then, you know, you can always do those what-ifs. Selvin Young, that's the guy's name I wanted to, I wanted to point out. Had a, had a fantastic day. Just, uh, just a pleasure to watch him. And uh, Jay Cutler looking pretty good, too, our quarterback, uh, running, some, uh, running some interesting option plays there. Fumbles the ball, picks it up, and runs for about 30 yards. That uh, kind of reminds me of the Elway days when you see that kind of action. Classic Broncos play. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You know, make make uh, make lemonade. I think that's the uh, that's the philosophy of the Denver Broncos. So, uh, as I said, we got a lot of uh, topics that we want to cover this evening. Uh, a little bit later on, our plan is to be bringing on Dr. Robert Zubrin, uh, and we'll be talking with him about his book Energy Victory, which should be uh, a lot of fun um, and some very interesting. Uh, some very interesting discussion. Before we get to that, though, let's note a couple of anniversaries that uh, 
have either passed this weekend or, I don't know, might, might be occurring today. One that I had meant to mention on Friday uh, when I did the latest Better All the Time, uh, which we might, we might get into Better All the Time a little bit as well this evening, was uh, that uh, Pearl Harbor Day was on Friday. And, uh, you know, I went and put that date on there, December 7th, and, and posted the, the, the list of good news, and it never even occurred to me oh, that, that, uh, until later in the day that, ah, oh, that was Pearl Harbor Day. I really should have said something uh, noting that day and, uh, and remembering, uh, you, you know, kind of the beginning, well, absolutely the beginning of, uh, the, the beginning of World War II and just uh, a very important day in our history, I suppose. Absolutely, and the fact that uh, no other uh, attack by one government on another on American soil has taken place in the intervening period is probably the better all-the-time news to take away from that. Yeah, uh, well, that would have been hard to spin, uh, I, you're right, into a, into a better all-the-time. Uh, but uh, I, I guess uh, that, that's, pretty good, that's a pretty good spin, actually. You, 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 you've got it, Mike. You, you can... You can you can do the spin doctoring to, to, to make it into good news. Um, and there was another anniversary going on. Why don't you tell us about that one? That we did, and this will be a little easier to spin in a positive sense. Absolutely. Uh, this last week was uh, the anniversary of the re- repeal of a piece of legislation uh, enacted in the 1920s, uh, the Volstead Act. Do you know what the Volstead Act did? The Volstead Act. Tell us about that. The Volstead Act made it illegal to... Uh, sell, transport, or buy spiritus liquors in the United States. It made alcohol illegal in the uh, domain of the United States. Aha, and, uh-huh. and that was, uh, so that was prohibition. That was prohibition. And uh, according to uh, one television program I watched this week, uh, it cost the government some $500 million per year. And I don't know whether that was uh, contemporary money or... Uh, uh, corrected for inflation, but even if it wasn't uh, contemporary and it was cont- corrected, that's a serious chunk of change. Absolutely. So that so so, in addition to what we would think of as all the social and fun benefits of um, the repeal of prohibition, there was actually a significant economic component involved. Absolutely, uh, something we might be able to talk with uh, Dr. Zubrin about a little later. Well, I, I, I hope we're I hope we're able to get into that. Now, I'm just uh, seeing that I got a call here from the 303 area code, and I'm wondering if that might have been him trying to reach me. So, um, I'm, what I'm going to do is, I'm actually, uh, well, this is tricky. This never happens to the real guys on the radio. Let's see. Never ever. We never what? lose a, a, <laughs> a commentator or a guest. You know, I I don't mean to put the whole world on hold here. Um, I wish we had a pre-recorded. We can't cut to a commercial. Yeah, I know exactly. I don't. I don't have any pre-recorded uh, stuff to play. Let me. Um, let me see if uh, I can contact someone here and put him in touch with Dr. Zubrin. Uh, no, the one person I was going to try to reach is not there. So, um, well, there was another um, energy-related uh, story having to do with biomass that you had. Uh, had uh, mentioned in an email earlier. What's what's going on with that? Well, uh, briefly put, uh, a company in England has uh, recently put on the market a product called the FuelPod 2, um, and its capability is to produce uh, about 50 liters of biodiesel from recycled uh, fryer oil, fryer grease, Mm-hmm. Uh, in your garage automatically for the uh, low low price of uh, 2056 pounds or uh, roughly $4000 give or take we'll call that $4000 and what do you get what do you get for your money here exactly a uh, stand in the corner unit looks like a uh, uh, electric vacuum machine vacuum cleaner or a, a shop vac right uh, where you pour grease in one end and push the button and out the other end comes biodiesel so you know, I've I've heard of these kinds of setups before. Um, what what do you have to? Uh, ha, I mean, do, do you have to have anything in addition to the like the, the the French fry grease in order to make biodiesel out of one of these things, or is it is that is it really that simple? The process that I am most familiar with, and I'm not saying that that's exclusively the only way to do it. Yeah. But the uh, the standard process, if you will, combines. Uh, 
methanol and caustic lye uh, in a certain proportion with your uh, used French fry grease filtered. Uh, the methanol and lye is, acts as a catalyst. It's not consumed in the reaction, but it actually uh, converts the uh, fatty acids in the French fry grease into something much much more similar to uh, uh, pump diesel fuel. Uh-huh. Uh, so once you load this thing up with uh, your uh, chemical catalyst, it should run relatively unattended uh, with just a little bit of electricity to provide heat to drive the reaction. I see. Okay. So, so you have to get these, uh, these catalysts, but by and large, if you can find a good source of French fry grease, you're able to fuel your vehicle with, uh, with this device. Correct. And uh, the, uh, about half of the uh, French fry oil you put in comes out as biodiesel, and approximately the other half comes out as uh, glycerol, or what we might know better as glycerin, a component of uh, uh, any number of things, but including hand lotions and uh, other uh, cosmetics. And worst comes to absolute worst, you can take this glycerin and uh, dump it on the uh, compost heap, and it's compostable. So there you have it. So you can take... Uh, uh, I'm sorry, you can you can dump it on the compost heap and make compost, or you can use the compost to make your fuel? Uh, you can dump it on the compost heap, and it contributes to the, the building of your compost, uh, much like uh, any other number of uh, high-carbon components you can add to your compost. Now, from a practical standpoint, I wonder um, how much uh, of the source material grease is, is the average person likely to be able to get their hands on? Is this something that people can really make work and they can really fuel their vehicles off this kind of thing? I would suppose that depends uh, heavily on uh, what kind of neighborhood you live in and uh, how uh, effective the uh, food police have been in cleaning up your neighbor's uh, uh, attitudes toward French fries. Right. But uh, given the fact that uh, this machine will convert 50 liters or about 13 gallons, uh, and I reading this uh, material, it's a little hard to see whether that's input or output, but let's take it as output, 13 gallons output. Uh, so for one batch, you make roughly a tank full of fuel. And a friend of mine's driving uh, from Pueblo to Colorado Springs on a daily basis, and he makes uh, about 50 miles a gallon on his uh, diesel fuel Jetta. Mm -hmm. uh, we're talking roughly... Uh, 515 or 520 uh, miles worth of fuel out of, uh, oh, 25, 26 gallons or uh, one good restaurant's worth, one one change of oil at uh, your local fast food restaurant. Okay. So, so if you strike up some, some friendships or uh, manage to uh, convince your local producer that you want one out of a week's worth of changes... Uh, I don't see where this would be uh, too much of a drain on the resource, so to speak. Right. Okay. So, so not everybody could do it, but uh, it's a step in the right direction. Yeah, it's it's something anyway. It's it's something. I, I've just I've just gotten word from uh, our guest that uh, he is actually listening to the podcast right now, and I have uh, emailed him the dial-in number. But uh, if you're listening, that number is three four seven two one five eight nine seven two need you to call that number, actually, to join the show. So hopefully he'll be on with us momentarily. So that's, uh, that uh, gets us to kind of uh, where, where we're going with, with tonight's show, because if we talk about this development, biomass, uh, which is going to give us, I guess this is methanol, is that right, or do you get ethanol out of the thing? Uh, out of this particular unit, you get biodiesel. Biodiesel, okay, I'm sorry, excuse me. Um, but I know they, they can be used. Biomass can be used to make either ethanol or, or methanol. Um, we've got the uh, repeal of the uh, of the Volkstead Act, and we've got Pearl Harbor, which is the anniversary of a, of an attack on America. And all these topics kind of come together uh, in in terms of uh, what we'll be talking with our guest about this evening, his book Energy Victory. So hopefully he'll be joining us shortly, and we will commence to talking about that. Uh, actually, the the book uh, 
pretty much follows exactly that uh, evolution in uh, the chapters. Uh, the the opening arguments are why we should move to biomass. The the middle chapters are how, and uh, the follow up is uh, uh, back to the some reasoning on why and how uh, the these kind of uh, biomass fuels issues and uh, fuels in general uh, were the heart of the Second World War. Absolutely, absolutely. Important, uh, important topic. And I think the idea that our energy policy could play such a critical role in defending our country, as it did then, uh, and, and as apparently it, uh, it, it does now, although I guess right now uh, he would argue that uh, it's it's not actually uh, the policies that we currently pursue. That is to say, aren't aren't doing much to defend us. That they're in fact putting us at much greater risk, owing to the fact that uh, by using foreign oil, by continuing to buy oil, particularly uh, in the book he talks about Saudi Arabia, we uh, provide money that ends up in the hands of terrorists, and in fact enables and uh, supports terrorist activities, the very activities that we're trying to bring an end to. Absolutely, and uh, on on top of that, it's like any other uh, situation where you have a limited number of producers. Uh, if you can only go to one guy, you are beholden to that uh, individual for uh, any number of things in addition to the product. Right. So that is the that is really the challenge area that we face today, and that's what the again. Momentarily, we hope uh, we, we we hope to be getting into that. Meanwhile, I'll tell you what. While we while we wait for him uh, to join us, why don't we why don't we step away from that and let's talk about a few of the other topics that we had uh, lined up for potentially getting into this evening. I know we had said that we might want to just revisit pretty much everything that we had on our uh, Better All the Time feature this week. And was there any was there any of those, Mike, that struck you as particularly interesting? Anything that uh, that kind of caught your fancy in terms of uh, good news, uh, technological developments that you that that you'd like to mention. Well, I'll definitely throw myself into the uh, role of say that uh, the article on uh, tattoos as a replacement for injections struck me as very interesting. That is interesting. I, I mentioned in writing that that uh, I'm a person who, uh, because of a condition I have, I have to take injections every day. And, in fact, uh, three days a week I have to take three injections. So I end up taking about, what is that, seven plus uh, six, 13 injections every week. So the notion of eliminating some of that discomfort and some of that uh, hassle associated with, uh, with, having to, with having to take injections is a very intriguing idea. Uh, I will add my voice to that uh, endorsement. I went through a period of, in my life where I was taking uh, uh, three to four injections a week, and uh, not to put too fine a point on it, it was uh, quite a pain, if you'll pardon the pun. It um, is a pain. I mean, you know, physically, um, it, it's, uh, it, it's a hassle. Uh, I'm actually getting ready to leave on a business trip tomorrow. I'll be gone for three days, and one of the things that I – do is I, I usually take uh, my my more significant round of injections on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays, but it's like this week, it's such a hassle traveling with medication that I'm going to go ahead and take one batch tonight and take another batch on Thursday and only take the one thing that I have to take every day with me, just because it's it's so much trouble getting medicine through security anymore. It's it's a hassle um, with, with these particular medications. You have to... Uh, uh, I always have to get a, a refrigerator in my room. So it's like, you know, it's, it's one thing on top of another. It makes your life, um, it just, it's one additional layer of complication in life, as if life wasn't complicated enough, having to, having to manage something like that. And here, the development that they're talking about pretty much eliminates that. And this new technology, uh, how soon was this uh, slated to potentially hit the market? Well... See, I don't. Uh, let me let me have a look here because that's an excellent question, and I don't know if I got the time frame on there. As a matter of fact, I just got the method, but uh, it it was something that they're trialing now, 
and with any luck, something that we'll be seeing uh, in the very near future. Now, for the moment, this technology is uh, almost exclusively aimed at uh, insulin-dependent diabetes, right? That's right. Um, but I would, uh, I would hasten to point out that as far as I read it, as far as I understand it, anything that's taken um, subcutaneously would work pretty much on the same principle. So if you're, uh, I, I, think, I think the point here is that it's, it's testing for the blood sugar levels and it's, it's regulating that, so it's set up specifically for that. But any medication that, um, that's taken subcutaneously could work the same way and you could use one of these tattoos as, as a means of providing that, uh, uh, that, that regular, I won't say injection, that regular dosage of that medicine. Um, I, I would think intermuscular is going to be a little bit uh, tougher of a nut to crack. I'm not sure that uh, there will be a tattoo solution for that. I think we might have to wait for nanotechnology and uh, uh, fantastic voyage type stuff before, <laughs> before people are able to, uh, to find a really simple solution for that. All right, I was just checking. Uh, we're still waiting for our guest to join. He, he did noti notify that, uh, uh, that, he's, that he's listening. If, uh, if you're still listening, let me give you that number one more time. The number is 347-215-8972. Actually, he's emailed me and says he's here, but I'm not seeing his number on the switchboard. I can say from personal experience that uh, the first time around this can be something of a challenge, but uh, by comparison to uh, all of the alternatives that aren't available, uh, we've got a, a good thing going here on Blog Talk Radio. Absolutely, we do. All right, now I see the number. Okay, it has appeared, and I'm going to hit that, and I believe we now have our guest with us. Hello, are you there? I'm right here. I've been here for the past ten minutes. So sorry about that. Uh, the Blog Talk Radio switchboard only just brought your number up. Apologize for keeping you waiting on the line like that. Let me very quickly introduce our guest. We've got Dr. Robert Zubrin with us. He's the president of the Mars Society, which is an international organization that advocates a manned Mars mission as a goal by private funding if possible. He's also president of Pioneer Astronautics, a private company that does research and development on innovative aerospace technologies. Uh, he holds degrees in mathematics, aeronautics and astronautics, and nuclear engineering. And he's best known, perhaps, as an advocate for manned space exploration and settlement on the planet Mars. His proposed Mars Direct program, which outlined the fast way to get exploration and settlement of the red planet going, was the basis for his best-selling book, The Case for Mars. He's also the author of several other books, including his latest, which we've been talking about a little bit, entitled Energy Victory, and which we'll be getting into a little bit later, starting right now. Dr. Robert Zubrin, welcome to Fast Forward Radio. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, let's start out. Let's just get right into what the book is about. And, and let me just kind of uh, take a stab at, at restating very shortly what your thesis is, and you can uh, correct me if I'm wrong or expand if I, if I get pretty close. So the, the idea that you outline here is that the effective way for us to win the war on terror is to cut, cut off the funding for the terrorists and that the effective way to do that is to get our country completely off foreign oil once and for all. And then I guess that the best way for us to do that is to start making cars that will burn methanol and ethanol in addition to gasoline. Well, that's uh, the general idea, but there's a couple of, of, of uh, fine points to this that, that need to be emphasized. I'm not talking about getting our country off of foreign oil. I'm talking about breaking the oil cartel worldwide. Um, energy independence is an inadequate goal because if the OPEC could destroy Japan's economy, for example, they'll still crash the international economy. Um, and, the, uh, and we have to force down the price of oil internationally, which once again cannot be done simply by taking the United States off of foreign oil. Um, we, we have to attack the oil cartel internationally. And the way to do that is to put a mandate that all new cars sold in the United States, not made in the United States, sold in the United States, be flex 
fueled, which means able to run on either alcohol or gasoline. That would make flex fuel the international standard. It would force the Japanese car makers, for example, the Korean car makers, the European car makers, as well as the American car makers, to switch their lines over to flex fuel, which means that every car marketed internationally in the world would be able to run on either alcohol or gasoline, which means that gasoline would be forced to compete against alcohol at the pump everywhere in the world, not just in Kansas, but in Kenya, okay? and in India, everywhere. Um, and that is how to destroy the vertical monopoly. You see, you know, they've raised the price of oil 60% this year. They've raised it a factor of eight since 1999. Hugo Chavez is talking about sending the price up to $200 a barrel. And so long as they have a vertical monopoly, so long as the only thing that cars can run on internationally is the stuff that OPEC is producing, then they have the ability to run up the price. Okay? However, alcohol fuels, including both methanol and ethanol, conceivably others, are competitive against gasoline in the $50 a barrel range, which means that the current price is untenable, let alone further price increases, if we can put cars out there that can use the alternative fuel. Okay? So the way to destroy OPEC is to basically open the market. Right now we've got a closed market. We've got to bust the market open. Okay? And it's going to take a government action to do that, but once we do that, we're really talking about a market-driven solution here. Now, as soon as you do that, Hugo Chavez is sunk. Venezuela cannot afford to sell oil at this point at $50 a barrel. The, the, even Iran, which while it, it can produce oil for $15 a barrel, they have this huge state bureaucracy, a huge state budget that requires a massive infusion of petroleum money. And so once again, they're sunk. They would not be able to afford to meet payroll, let alone having a, a nuclear bomb program if you force the price of oil down to $50 a barrel. Now, the Saudis could survive oil at $50 a barrel, um, but it would really cramp their style a lot. Um, the, 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 it would greatly reduce the amount of funds they have available to support the propagation of terrorism internationally, which is what they have been doing. And, um, the, uh, and it would give them pause. It would uh, make them start thinking about perhaps taking the 85% of their population that's on welfare off by actually developing some real economic development instead of just what they are now, which is... Um, uh, a tyranny with an oil well and a state security apparatus attached, um, keeping their population on welfare so they can spend all their times in mosques getting brainwashed. Um, so so it's, inter would... it's interesting. What you're talking about is less a technological solution and more a market solution to the to the problem. Is that right? I mean, there there is technology involved because we're talking about changing the standard by which uh, regular automobiles operate. But that seems almost secondary to. The, the real goal here, which is which is to get in and compete with oil um, by, by providing right. something that can. Now, well, once once we open the market, then technology will mobilize. Then, for example, um, once you have this two trillion dollar market opened up to alternatives, you'll find billions of dollars of R and D money mobilized into, for example, developing cellulosic ethanol, which would vastly expand the ethanol supply, or developing catalytic ways of producing ethanol from synthesis gas, which would allow us to produce it the same way we can make from methanol, which is from virtually any carbonaceous material ranging from any kind of biomass whatsoever to urban trash as well as coal and natural gas. The, 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 um, you know, if we can open the market, uh, there's technology now that can meet it and meet the price of $50 a barrel, and it, with the market opened, uh, human ingenuity will drive the price down well below $50 a barrel. That's the thing. Because, I mean, look, coal right now um, sells for $0.03 cents a kilogram, um, which it, it, a gallon of gasoline weighs uh, 3 kilograms, which is if you could turn coal into gasoline or into alcohol that is equivalent to gasoline, you'd be basically producing gasoline at, at 9 or $0.10 cents a gallon. Uh, plus uh, uh, in raw materials costs, plus the other costs. Um, so that uh, if we open the market, um, you know, the technology exists right now to drive 
the oil price down to $50, and we can drive it a lot uh, further than that once the technology uh, advancement gets moving. What about that idea of using coal to create a liquid fuel? We have plenty of coal, and it has been done in the past, I believe, uh, in, well, World, the, the, in World War II, they used coal to make liquid fuel. Could we do that? Well, or why, why is Germans alcohol a better solution? Okay, because alcohols are much easier to make than gasoline. If you see what, what's called synthesis gas is a mixture of carbon monoxide and hydrogen, and you can make synthesis gas from any carbonaceous material whatsoever. Okay, including any kind of biomass as well as coal, natural gas, urban trash, what have you. Now, right now, the only fuel you can make easily from synthesis gas is methanol, okay? okay. And well, methanol is an alcohol. Methanol will run in flex-fuel cars. So if, if we put a sufficient number of flex-fuel cars on the road out there that uh, people are willing to set up pumps to serve them, see, right now there's not enough. Right? I mean, the reason why there's only 700 E85 pumps in the whole United States out of 200,000 gas stations is because if you've got a 7-Eleven and you own three pumps, you're not going to dedicate one of them to a kind of fuel that only 2% of the cars can use. Okay? But if we had a mandate that all cars sold in this country had to be flex-fueled, within three years we'd have 50 million cars on the road here capable of running on methanol or ethanol. And then you'd see E85 and M85 pumps going up all over the place. Um, and, and that would really pin OPEC's ears right back to their head, and that would be going on everywhere in the world, um, which is the point. Um, and, uh, yes, if necessary, we can make it out of coal, now, um, which would immediately give uh, the United States energy security in, in, the, in the strategic sense. Uh, for economic security, though, what we need is, is, is the whole world um, to not be subject to blackmail from OPEC. And, um, and th th this is how you could do it. Now, if you want to um, address, um, uh, for instance, uh, uh, certain additional problems besides the strategic ones, such as global warming, uh, then uh, making your uh, alcohol from coal is not desirable. Uh, you would prefer to make it from biomass. Uh, because, uh, or from urban trash, which is going to decay into CO2 if it's left to its own devices, or from stranded natural gas, which is how most methanol today is made, um, which is to say natural gas that otherwise is just going to be flared. Um, and uh, then uh, your alcohol economy is acting very much to counter global warming. And so we can have uh, worldwide economic expansion and counter global warming at the same time. We don't need mandates suppressing our economy uh, to stop global warming. What we need to do is bust the oil cartel and put us on the alcohol standard. Okay? And if we do that, by the way, it would be tremendously beneficial, not just to us, but even more so to uh, the poorer countries of the world, the third world, um, you know, um, because the high oil price uh, that the Saudis and Mr. Chavez want to uh, introduce uh, and have been uh, pushing is a tremendous regressive tax against the world's poor. I mean, it's one thing for people in America to pay $100 a barrel for oil. It's another thing for people in, in Somalia who make $2 a day to pay $100 a barrel for oil. It means that a farmer can't get his crop to market because he can't pay the, for the gas. Now, is there right. a, a distinction between the um, what $100 uh, per barrel uh, turns into in terms of price per gallon uh, versus what it finally becomes by the time we pay for it at the pump, or I would think even worse yet, what the European Union pays for it at the pump because of all the taxes that are that, that are added to the gas. How, how big of a factor is that? Well, the taxes in Europe are much higher, which is why they're paying like $8 a gallon for gas right now. Right. Uh, in the United States, uh, I mean, obviously there is taxes, which depending upon which state you're in, uh, might run 50 or 60 cents a, a, a gallon. Um, the... Uh, uh, the the hundred dollars a uh, a barrel uh, is eventually uh, going to translate into gas in like the three dollar and fifty cent range, which okay. we're already beginning to see. Right. Um, and um, uh, but uh, you know two hundred is going to be a lot more. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly right. Uh, um, and well, Dr. Susan, uh, can I uh, can I jump in here and sure. Turn us back to uh, the regressive nature of uh, uh, expensive oil. Yeah. Um, 
in a nutshell, the the quick, simple, cheap, and easy way to get uh, to an alcohol economy mm-hmm. is by way of ethanol. Uh, would you agree with that? No, I, I don't agree with that. I think both ethanol and methanol should be pursued. No, um, not not the, should they be should they be pursued? Which one is the easier one for uh, the peasant in the country to uh, to access? It depends what country. Uh, the methanol um, can be made from methanol at this point represents a, a broader based resource because it can be made from any kind of plant material whatsoever. Now, it's an inferior fuel to ethanol. Ethanol has more energy per gallon than methanol. But um, the things that ethanol has to be made out of right now are basically starches and sugars being fermented. Uh, That puts a certain floor price under uh, what uh, ethanol can cost. And it also somewhat restricts the, the, the resource base. Now, I think that, in fact, if we open up the market in this way, um, we're going to see money going into developing uh, cellulosic ethanol and resolving the technical issues there, as well as um, ethanol produced by inorganic catalysis, at which point ethanol will be producible from uh, as many or almost as many uh, feedstocks as, as methanol. So, um, but um, the of feed, I'll, I'll grant that the breadth of feedstocks is uh, definitely in, the, in favor of methanol, but from a... Uh, low-tech standpoint, it doesn't get much harder than uh, a boiling pot and a, uh, a chilled saucer over the top of it to make uh, what is essentially fuel-grade ethanol from whatever you might have on hand in terms of surplus uh, starch and or sugar. Uh, well, there's some truth to that. And also, uh, you know, in a lot of countries, um, there's a great deal of, of crops uh, that – for instance, if, if, if they're rotting, if, if, if they don't make it to market, if, uh, so forth, they're still perfectly good for making ethanol out of, even though they're no longer considered saleable as food. Um, so there's a lot of foodstuff material that could be turned to ethanol uh, at no cost to the food supply. Um, uh, so, so there's some truth to that. But, but the point is, you see, is that the the flex fuel car can use either methanol or ethanol. The flex fuel cars were actually originally developed for methanol. They were only recertified for ethanol later. And the um, what I want is to put the flex fuel cars out there and then let the market decide. Indeed, in some places, if uh, it's much easier to make ethanol, by God, let them make ethanol. Okay, let's talk a little about those flex fuel cars. First, let me say... You're listening to Fast Forward Radio on the Blog Talk Radio Network. We're talking with Dr. Robert Zubrin about his book, Energy Victory. And if you'd like to join us, if you have a question for Dr. Zubrin, you can call us at 347-215-8972. So looking at these um, flex fuel cars, my my first question would be, um, how does it open up the uh, energy market worldwide if in the U.S. we have a law that says the the cars have to be flex fuel? Because all the foreign automakers are going to turn their whole lines over. No one's going to walk away from the American market. It's, it's a situation somewhat analogous, you know, how California can sometimes move the whole American uh, industry by passing some regulation because they don't want to write off California as a market. It's too big. Well, this, the United States economy has the same relationship to the world economy. I mean, nobody's about to walk away from the American market. If we make a regulation here that cars have to be flex-fueled if they're going to be sold here, everybody's just going to convert their lines over. So they'll make all their cars flex fuel, not just make some flex fuel for the U.S.? Right. Okay. And uh, Zubrin, would uh, you consider a, an addition to the policy uh, some kind of incentive to uh, – uh, convert existing uh, compatible cars to uh, flex fuel? Uh, well, the, I think that um, we do want, there, you know, there's a variety of kits being marketed on the Internet right now to convert existing cars to flex fuel. The problem is nobody knows which are good and which are not. Uh, I, I think having um, a, a federal agency uh, or else an industry group um, give out certification so that someone could look at this and say, okay, this one has been certified either by the feds or by the better automobile associate, whatever, okay, mm-hmm. and, and, and they'd have some guarantee that they were getting. 
um, a, a good product. Uh, that would be a, a very positive development. Now, it's much cheaper to make them for flex fuel in the first place. It only adds about $100 to the cost of a car to Absolutely. manufacture. For the record, I was looking at it uh, for one of my vehicles, and the conversion cost is about 350 Right. And that's for so, a car you already have. It would cost about 300 you said? To, correct. Okay. All right. Uh, yeah, but the problem is uh, people look at these kits and, and they don't know uh, what they're getting into. And that's uh, a thing. If we could have some form of certification, then indeed um, we could then, uh, a lot of people would probably want to uh, convert. But one of, one of my questions about this was going to be cost, and it sounds like, if you can, if this is a conversion you can make for a few hundred dollars to an existing car, then if if a automobile manufacturer were to adopt this as their standard practice, the, it, it would scale and the the cost would not be tremendous. Well, the cost right now is not tremendous. In other words, right now this year Detroit is producing around 24 different models of cars that are flex fueled, and they only cost about a hundred bucks more than the same car in non flex fuel form. Okay, because the only difference is the programming of the electronic fuel injector and the materials used in the fuel line. Right. Which at the difference in pump price, at least uh, at my E85 pump uh, just over the hill, uh, is about uh, 100 gallons or 150 gallons worth of uh, uh, price difference to pay for the, the uh, conversion or the, the initial investment. Right. And so uh, unlike a hybrid, which takes you years to earn back the difference in cost, this is something uh, that you earn it back in months and uh, at most. Uh, but not only that, you see, um, by mandating that all the cars be flex-fueled, you put a critical mass of flex fuel cars out there, which would give the station owners the incentive to put up alcohol pumps. You see, right now, there's no real upside in general to owning a flex fuel car because you can't find an E85 pump anyway, uh, unless in some states in the Midwest where, where the state governments have subsidized them because of the farm lobby. Um, but the, 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 but if we had this mandate, as I say, within you know three years, a third of the cars that are actively being driven would be capable of using alcohol fuels, and those alcohol fuels would come up. Those pumps would be put up. They'd be there. And then um, there would be an, an increased incentive for people with, with existing cars to convert them and a war for people to buy new cars that were flex-fueled from the get-go. Dr. So, Rubin, we're getting a question in in the uh, chat room. Uh, perhaps you can address it. Maybe you'd like to uh, throw it out to uh, any experts that might be listening. Um, Guest 821 is asking us, uh, uh, what's the time frame for uh, cellulosic ethanol coming to market uh, do you have any research that points in that direction? Well, cellulosic ethanol, um, a, it looks like uh, we'll probably be seeing cellulosic ethanol in, 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 at this point in, um, you know, four or five years or something. Uh, I think if we had a flex fuel mandate, that would greatly accelerate it. It would, uh, you know, and it would greatly increase the stakes on uh, – uh, the, and the, the, for the benefit of developing cellulosic ethanol. So if Detroit is already making flex fuel cars, and yeah. there's, there's bound to be a, a push for it uh, from, from the farm lobby, what's, um, what's the biggest hindrance to rolling out a program like what, like what you're talking about doing? What, what would well, uh, there, as documented in the book Energy Victory, there is a massive amount of Saudi money playing in Washington right now. They have been feeding money into most of the major think tanks that give the politicians their ideas. Uh, and this is why we see all these diatribes against ethanol being put out um, by uh, supposed free market uh, economists. Um, not mentioning a word about the much larger subsidies uh, for oil. Um, this is, uh, you know, they, they uh, uh, the think tanks, the politicians themselves, uh, you know, I mean, here you have the Saudis. I mean, just to give you an example, okay, this goes beyond energy policy. This gets into foreign policy. Um, all right. They are uh, propagandizing their people and Muslims all over the world to kill Americans. Okay, uh, I mean here's a sample of, of some of the stuff put out in Saudi government um, publications. 
um, this is from Al-Watan, official Saudi Arabian newspaper, okay, talking about, this is from December 2004, uh, discussing uh, the activities of the American troops in Iraq. Here's what they say about our soldiers. Okay, they say, a secret team of American physicians follows the troops during their attacks to ensure quick operations for extracting some organs and transferring them to private operation rooms before they are transported to America for sale. These teams offer $40 for every usable kidney and $25 for an eye. Okay? That's what they are saying about us. That is why the majority of foreign fighters coming into Iraq to blow up pet markets and attack our soldiers and create murder and mayhem of every type are Saudis, and the rest are Arabs who've been propagandized by the Saudis. Now, you would think that this going on, this massive, rabid incitement against us would cause a protest from the U.S. State Department, and it doesn't. Okay, well, guess what? Okay, Colin Powell was Secretary of State when that article was published in 2004. A week after he retired as Secretary of State, Colin Powell answers his front door, and there's Prince Bandar with the keys to a new Jaguar that he gives him. Now, that gift was legal, okay, because it was given to Mr. Powell a week after he retired as Secretary of State. Okay, so it was not technically a bribe. However, well, plus, uh, according to your book, they were just good old racquetball buddies, right? Isn't that yes, that, that's right. Okay, but as Prince Bandar explained to the Washington Post, well, if word gets around how good the Saudis are to their friends after they leave office, you'd be amazed how much more friendly while they're in office. Okay, now here's Spencer Abraham, who was George Bush's Secretary of Energy during his first term and was actively involved in pushing the hydrogen hoax, which is a completely fake solution to the energy problem, as discussed in Energy Victory. He is now a paid lobbyist okay, for um, Saudi Arabia. Uh, Patton Boggs, the largest lobbying uh, law firm in, in Washington, D.C., with 400 lawyers on staff, is registered with the U.S. Department of Justice as an agent of the Saudi Arabian government. Akin Gump, a leading Democratic Party uh, law firm, uh, the Vernon Jordan is its head, very influential in the Clinton administration. Okay, they've taken Saudi money. Um, James Baker III, uh, who wrote the Iraq ham, uh, you know, report of uh, very prominent a year ago and recommending things, uh, how to deal with Iraq. Uh, his law firm just got $4 million from the Saudi royal family to defend them against the claims of the, uh, the families of the 9-11 victims. Okay? And you know, guess what's not in the Baker-Hamilton report? The, is any idea that the United States should pressure the Saudis into stopping urging Arabs everywhere to kill us? Okay, so is it any surprise with this going on that uh, we don't have a competent energy policy and haven't had one for a third of a century, ever since 1973, when the Saudis made it clear that they were not our allies? So um, when we read, and, and I do see quite a bit of critical uh, stuff about ethanol on the web, the more I think about it, uh, it, it seems to me that when the subject comes up, in these forums, it's generally dismissed for a number of different reasons. And your point is that those arguments are actually, in some sense, financed by the Saudis, that that is... Uh, well, either by them or by the oil uh, companies, which have a parallel interest in wanting to keep the price of oil high. Right. Uh, yeah. Uh, what, what about this argument that... Um, that uh, ethanol is driving up the price of corn and that people are going to be going hungry in Latin America? Okay, uh, the price of food is going up internationally because of increased demand from China and India right now, okay, as well as because of increased costs in the price of, of fuel. That has driven up the price of fish, for example, which do not eat corn. Um, the, the, uh, look, okay, I mean, it's really funny, okay, because when I was circulating the manuscript for this book, and I circulated it to an editor at uh, one of the more liberal publishing houses, he reacted with horror, saying, oh, this book, I mean, how cruel can you be wanting to take away all this money from the Arabs? What will they do after that? Um, you know, you'll make them all poor. That's, you know, such a, a vicious thing that you want to do. Well, well, let's look at this for a minute, okay? In 2006, Saudi Arabia, with a population of 24 million people, one in six of whom work, Okay, pulled in $200 billion in oil revenues. Simultaneously, in the same year, Kenya, with a population of 36 million, the majority of whom work, 
okay, pulled in $2.5 billion in foreign exchange from exports of, of, of all types, much of which they had to pay for overpriced oil imports. Okay, so distributed elsewhere, the foreign exchange earnings of Saudi Arabia could double the foreign exchange earnings of uh, 80 countries the size of Kenya. Okay, and Kenya, by the way, is not a particularly poor country, in, I mean, among third world countries. It's not one of the 50 poorest countries in the world, for example. It's a sort of a run-of-the-mill average everyday third world country. Um, the, 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 now, when you transfer this money, okay, from the oil cartel to tropical agricultural co countries, do you think you're going to be um, uh, helping those people or hurting those people? you think they're better off having the money go to Saudi Arabia or having them go to agriculture and industry in their own country? Because, by the way, this also means industrial development. You're not going to be shipping biomass from these countries overseas. You'll be transforming it into methanol or ethanol right there, and, if you want, and part of it will be used there and the other part will be exported. Because that, that's another point here. You see, if we had this flex fuel mandate, there would be a larger market for agricultural crops uh, here in the United States than American farmers could produce to, no matter how hard they try. That is a good thing, okay? That means we could give the American farmers all the business they can handle, and we'd have business left over to give, for instance, to Latin America. Right now, you know, we're tariffing Brazilian ethanol to keep it out of the country, Okay, because the ethanol program right now is not being run as a serious energy security initiative. It's being run largely as a subsidy for the farmers, and they don't want any foreign ethanol coming in. If we expanded the market in the way that I'm proposing, the American farmers would be able to sell every gallon of ethanol they could make, and there'd still be room for ethanol made in Haiti and the, uh, Jamaica and Brazil and Colombia and all these places, and the same with Europe vis-a-vis -vis Africa and Japan vis-a-vis -vis Southeast Asia. Okay? We're, we're talking about taking about a trillion dollars a year that is now going to the oil cartel and switching it over to the world's farmers instead, about half perhaps going to advanced sector farmers, the other half going to the third world. This would be a tremendous engine for world development. It would be a tremendous humanitarian act. So... How do we make it happen? What, what if, if, if people are listening to this right now and they think this mandate sounds like a great idea, what's, what's the next step? What should, what should people do? What, 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 what do will overcome they, this uh, environment of resistance? What they have to resistance? do is approach the political camps who, you know, if they're conservatives, approach the conservatives that are running for president. If they're liberals, approach the liberals who are running for president and say, will you support a flexible mandate? Will you call for it? Okay? You know, I mean, because look, after all, in whose interest is it that the cars not be flex-fueled? It's only in the interest of the oil cartel. So this is really a question of which side are they on. You know, I put out uh, this thesis uh, first in, in a magazine article a year ago, um, and uh, it was read by John Marburger, who's President Bush's uh, science advisor. And he uh, emailed me a bunch of detailed questions. And I answered them, and then I said, okay, why not do it? If President Bush called for this, he'd get bipartisan support. I mean, here's Nancy Pelosi is a big supporter of biofuels. There'd be lots of Democratic support. This bill would pass. It would be an enormous accomplishment for the administration, an enormous accomplishment for America, an enormous accomplishment for the West in general. And, and, and so he answers me. He says, well, we don't believe in mandates. And then I have a meeting with one of his staff scientists, a Ph.D., he met with me for three hours. He was a very intelligent man. And I said, look, why not do this? This won't cost the Treasury a nickel. He says, what are you talking about? This won't cost the Treasury a nickel. This will cost a lot of money. I said, what are you talking about? He says, each of the car engine types that have to be turned into flex fuel, it would cost a million dollars to recertify them. Each one. I said, how many different engine types are there between the big three? He says, 150. So that's $150 million. Okay, where are we going to find that money? I said, what are you talking about? That's the amount we spend on foreign oil in three hours in wow. this country. Okay? So, in other words, here's the Bush administration making excuses because they're in with the Saudis and they're in with big oil. Who's Hillary Clinton in with? Who's Barack Obama in with? Who's John McCain in with? Who's Giuliani in with? Who's Huckabee in with? This is the question that each person listening to this has got to ask their candidate. Okay? Um, and say, look, this is, you know, what, what you need to come out for, okay? You know, otherwise, there's no reason why you should be president. I mean, maybe you should run for president of Saudi Arabia, but not this country. 
Well, based on reading your book, though, it seems like everybody's in with the Saudis. I mean, uh, the the the, uh, well, the dealers are pretty you know, long, aren't they? Or uh, there's look, there's a lot of Saudi influence being peddled around, but you know, Mr. Huckabee has a choice. Mrs. Clinton has a choice. Mr. Obama has a choice. Mr. McCain has a choice. Okay, they can decide to to continue this intolerable situation, or they can do something else. You know, you know, up till now everybody's just been going with the flow. Okay, accepting the status quo. But look where this has gotten us. In in 1972, the United States paid four billion dollars for oil imports. Last year, it was 260 billion. It's gone up a factor of 60. Okay, and if the oil price remains at at a hundred dollars a barrel uh, next year, it'll be 400 billion. The, the the amount we paid for oil imports in 1972 equaled 1.2 percent of our defense budget of that year. The amount we paid last year was half of our defense budget, okay? And the money went right over to the other side, okay? The Saudis, over the same period, went from $2.7 billion in oil earnings in 1972 to $200 billion last year. It's going to be close to $300 billion this year. I mean, we're literally right now funding both sides in the war on terror with comparable amounts of money. And soon, we'll be paying more to the other side than we pay to our own defense department. And we'll be... When you say that, it's important to clarify, you mean in, by way of purchasing oil. Is that right? That's right. Yeah, that's, that's right. how we do it. So, so on the it. one hand, we're, 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 we're putting troops in the field, and on the other hand, we're buying oil that eventually ends up putting troops in the field. Other, the, the other guys. The, that's right. The, the, the side we're fighting. Amazing stuff. Right. And it's, it's all documented in Energy Victory. It, the, the book extensively documents how the Saudis have been using their revenues to uh, finance terrorism, how they have set up over 20,000 madrasas around the world, not counting those inside of Saudi Arabia, how they set up over 1,000 in Pakistan alone. That's how they created the Taliban. But how they're, they're running uh, 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 Islamist uh, fundamentalist insurgencies uh, and jihads everywhere from Biafra in Nigeria, where they're killing Christians, to Algeria, where they're killing secular Muslims, um, Egypt, they killed Anwar Sadat, Israel, of course, terrorism all the time, okay, um, Iraq, where they're killing us as well as Shiites, uh, former Soviet Central Asia, where they're killing ethnic Russians, India, where they're killing Hindus, and um, uh, Thailand and Indonesia, where their horrific campaigns against Buddhists are going on, Philippines against Catholics, of course, 9-11 in this country, um, the, the Sudan, okay, where they were behind the genocide against the Christians and animists in the South before and against the, the black uh, non-Muslim uh, uh, fundamentalist uh, Muslims in Darfur right with, now. With only about a minute left, we have a question from the chat room. What is the main question, or maybe this is what is the first question, that we should be asking the candidates, and I presume this means uh, for president, uh, in, in terms of sussing up maybe uh, how effective they're going to be on this issue? Well, they, you should ask them, will you support a mandate to make all cars sold in this country flex-fueled and break the international oil cartel? Or will you allow this situation to continue, allow Mr. Chavez to get his $200 a barrel oil, allow Saudi oil revenues to go to $500 billion a year, allow them to loot our economy, loot other economies, um, uh, commit genocide against the third world, essentially, through destroying uh, their economies in, in, in this way, you know, or will they fight back? Which side are they on? Okay. That, that's a very straightforward question, and that's the question that I think I'd like, I'd like to hear answered. Actually, I'd like to hear any direct uh, kind of question like that at one of these uh, debates, but that would be an excellent one indeed. Uh, the, the, the time went by much quicker than, than uh, we had thought that it would. We'd, we'd very much like to have you back on the show again. There's other things we would like to discuss with you, but let me just say once again, the book is called Energy Victory. We do have links for that book up on speculus.com. And Dr. Robert Zubrin, thank you so much for your time this evening. Okay, well, thank you for having me. All right. Well, Mike, that just about takes us to the end of the show. I, I, it's, it's too bad we had a little bit of technical difficulties there at the beginning, but we did, give, uh, we, we did manage to take the full half hour for the interview. What a fantastic interview that was, too. And I'm, I would definitely look forward to hearing from Dr. Zubrin again. Uh, as would I. We, you know, we, we just, uh, I think, just scratched the surface on this, and it was really generating some interesting uh, 
uh, discussion in the chat room. I think it probably will on the blog as well. Look forward to seeing some uh, s some further discussion of these issues down the road. Me too. Well, uh, time is up. Stephen has lined us up with a very interesting uh, closing music for this evening. Uh, I don't know if you if you saw the emails on that, but uh, the artist for our closing music this evening is actually Duran Duran. So, <laughs> a little flashback, just back to the uh, early '80s and uh, the back, first back to the '80s. Stuff. Yeah, but this is uh, this is not pirated music. They're 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 using the same site that Stephen uses to. Uh, bring up these independent artists that that we often play, and now Duran Duran itself, uh, you know, trying to get back in the limelight a little bit, has put a song up there, and their song is called "Falling Down." So we're going to uh, take a listen to that. And uh, Mike, thanks so much for uh, for filling in for Stephen tonight. It was great having you on the program. Thank you. And we will look forward to talking with you all once again on the next Fast Forward Radio. <laughs> Hey.